All right. Welcome back. It's another episode of the Me and My Friends podcast. I think this is actually the very first one that doesn't feature a Port Townsend-centric friend. I know that Wit has been there because I've invited him there before, but um, he has no direct experience. So we're going to be talking about loads of things that are completely different to Port Townsend. We're going to be talking about his experience going from a grocery bagger to one of Portland's industrial magnets. Uh, and I'm not talking the sciencey kind. <laughs> I got nothing. It's been a while <laughs> since I've done this. I don't even remember how to do it. But anyways, uh, Whit Stearns, my friend, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Mike, and thanks for the beer. Uh, yeah. We're joined by Scout, my dog. Yeah, you might hear Scout pitter-pattering around throughout the podcast. Um, we welcome any neat sound effects. Uh, she's a good dog, and she's just doing her best. Yeah, and you know, a lot of the fancy podcasts, they have various musical sounds and other zany, wacky sounds that come up throughout the podcast, and I really don't have that because I'm always broadcasting from my simple apartment. But with Scout here, uh, who knows what kind of noise she'll be making. All right, Mike. So what would you like to talk about? Well, I would like to talk about a lot of things. Um, but one conversation that we're having out on the stoop before we got in here was uh, concerning uh, the fact that you were a grocery bagger loaded with debt. And somehow you turn your life around and got out of that. And let me just preface that by saying that when I was a grocery bagger, my next step was then stocking groceries on a grocery shelf. I didn't figure out how to get out of uh, my student debt situation when I ate over here when uh, when we did that. So, uh, yeah, why don't you talk a little bit about how you defied this kind of like lazy millennial stereotype and <laughs> and worked your way from grocery bagger to where you are today it's true i was a grocery bagger only briefly and then i was dry goods which is just putting groceries on the shelf which i also didn't like yeah what i remember about doing that is uh when you would open box after box after box it would make my hands so dry yeah yeah it was awful yeah plagued by hand dryness um no one of the things that put me in that position was eight years of college a hundred thousand dollars worth of debt and i really found that there i was with two college degrees putting groceries on a shelf and it was a real bummer and i knew that there was money to be made in the world and that would relieve the majority of my issues because the money may not make happiness but it relieves things that take happiness away so i knew that i needed to make a lot of money and i knew that i needed to do it quickly because i was meeting 50 year old people that still had a hundred thousand dollars worth of student debt and i had actually just borrowed 70 something but in the years that it took me to get this education it nearly doubled and i was feeling really defeated and i thought that my only way out was faking my own death which i l literally considered 
uh, or working really hard and just making a bunch of money and paying it all off all at once, living absolutely as cheap as possible, which is what I did. So is that the moment in time that you put your college degree to use and got a job just like everybody tells you that you should? <laughs> what um, was your college degree? Why don't you remind us? Uh, well, I had a degree in psychology, oh, which is really useful. useful. <laughs> <laughs> and then I had a degree in geology, and that was also pretty useless. Um The two combined made no sense. But on top of that, I also had a lot of random education, certificates, EMT, welding, pipe fitting, that sort of stuff that I had just gotten along the way. And I really thought that those were important and those define me more than the actual degrees. The degrees were just happenstance. In the books, it lined up that I could get them and that's what I wanted. Yeah, I remember that you're always kind of a tinkerer. You um, would make really fun bicycles that you kind of welded together. What was it? The Silly Machine or something like that? The Giggle Machine. The Giggle was Machine. was a, a two-seater beach cruiser. That, yeah. Man, that thing was a death trap. And, Lucky it got stolen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, before you had a lawsuit. And you also had a motorcycle that you pretty much made. I made it and I put 80,000 miles on it before it was completely destroyed. By some guy that just backed over it, basically. By some guy that just drove into it when it was parked. Golly. And didn't, when you were at Portland State, didn't you build some sort of engine or come up with some sort of, uh, what was it? At the University of Alaska, I had taken mm-hmm. a, uh, a class and that had inspired me to build pretty much pulse jet and rotary jet engines. So in storage, I still have a decrepit old rotary jet engine that I should probably fire up and, you know, make myself the most hated man in my neighborhood. Would it just be really loud? Or? Oh, it's going to be real loud. Oh, yeah. Cool. <laughs> Is it a, a great barbecue trick to kind of pull out? Oh, it's uh, it's smaller than you think it'd be about. Oh. It's a little bit bigger than a football, but... um. It's real loud. It's real piercing loud. What can you really do with it? Not much. You could put it on things that have very low resistance, like the back of a bicycle. But you'd have to load your bicycle up with all the fuel. Oh. And so if you crash your bicycle, it could be a real hazard. <laughs> but anyway, That's besides the point. I built so, these engines and I was very proud of them. But that wasn't enough to get me a job. At least not a job that I wanted. So I was working at this grocery store and I graduated and I said, hey, um, I graduated. I have these degrees now. Am I more important to you? Do you want me to be a manager? What do you want? And they said, no, we can't even really give you a raise. Yeah, it seems like most grocery store employees in Portland might have master's degrees already. And I'm not going to tell you which grocery store I worked at, but it was the happiest store in town. And... I really enjoyed it and I enjoyed all my coworkers and I thought everybody was really nice there. And I, it was the first job I left where I didn't want to leave, but I had to. And that was to get a job on the North slope of Alaska in Prudhoe Bay working for an oil field service company. Well, let's take it back a couple steps. So you're unhappy bagging groceries and then later putting dry goods on the shelf and 
you are thinking about faking your own death and you're just like, how do I get through, uh, pay off right. all this student debt? How do yeah. I get out of this? My credit score is under 600. Everything's the worst. I have no money. My student loan bills are like 3000 bucks a month and I only get paid 1200 bucks a month. Nothing was adding up. And so I was just kind of assuming that I would default on all my loans and, then I decided, no, I'm a young-ish. I was 25 or so at the time. And I started looking for places where I could make a lot of money working really hard and at great physical risk. And because when I was 18, I didn't think I'd live to be 25. And when I was 25, I didn't think I'd live to be 35. I just figured I would die young. That seems to be the way most people who do what I do go. What age do you expect to live to right now? I don't know. I, uh, I'm i 33 now, so maybe 33 or 100. <laughs> I have no idea. Robot parts and drugs are just going to keep us going. Yeah. Well, <laughs> let's hope so. <laughs> um, so I, I had all this energy and I had this hard work ethic and I had no place to put it because I lived in Portland, Oregon and jobs were really hard to find, especially cool ones, which is what I really wanted. So I started applying in Alaska and, you know, long story short, I ended up flying up there to take a, an employment exam for a welding position and ended up with a whole nother job being just a laborer uh, in Prudhoe Bay, which was paying a considerable amount, even though that same job in Portland would get minimum wage. I was pulling in probably $80,000 my first year just working hard. Um, and I was still very, very poor. There was a period where I was not being paid because I had just started and I had no money and they sent me home for my two weeks off and I had no money. So I just had to go camping and eat a bunch of veggies that I found in the woods and bought a little bit from a grocery store and just ate trout that I caught in a lake. Wow. Desperate times. It was, was it was a very low period. <laughs> Wasn't it during the recession as well? Like that kind so, of. Yeah, sort of. This of was a 2010, 2011. Yeah. And so I was living under my friend Eric's uh, in a little tiny Harry Potter style closet underneath some stairs. It was 27 square feet and by far the smallest apartment I've ever had. Wow. And. But you were at this time making eighty thousand, or on your way to eighty thousand. I was making eighty thousand right out the gate. Wow. Just being able to be up there and working sixteen-hour days. I mean, the overtime was two-thirds of my paycheck, wow. and I just made money, paid off immediate debts that I had, and then I decided that by living cheap, like absolute poverty level cheap, I could pay off my loans in a few years. Wow, which is what I did. Not I many rent- people would do that. They would start making that eighty thousand and be like, "Well, maybe I'll get that new car that I want." Yeah, it's easy to live to your paycheck, I think, and a lot of people do, and and that's not wrong. I just think that maybe you drank a little too much of the Kool Aid because in college you have you have to live poor, right? But they guarantee you certain things. You can live in the dorm rooms and you can do this and that, but. 
when you're not in college anymore, there are no more dorm rooms. There's no more $400 small apartments downtown. You have to get creative and you have to think outside the box. And that's where I decided to start living in garages. Wow. So I would rent a garage and I would, you know, put up a camping situation in it. And on my two weeks off from this job, if I had two weeks off, then I would just go there and hang out and relax and try to spend as little money as possible. Wow. And some people would call you perhaps a poster child for why you shouldn't go to college and just get a trade instead. What do you think about that? I think college made me intellectually enriched. And I feel that anybody that says you shouldn't go to college, otherwise you're going to end up with a bunch of debt living in a garage, has a limited scope. Because consider the potential. Like you might live in a garage for a couple of years while you get back on your feet afterwards. But the rest of your life, you have this knowledge. And I got exposed and networked into many different people's lives. And I feel like I'm a better person because of it. I don't know that I would be the same witty, annoying person that I am today had I not gone to college. Witty? Is that a pun? It is a pun. I'm glad you picked <laughs> up on that. I try to lay them out easy for you, and you can hit them while they come. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, when I was up there, I met a person who was a rig hand on a drilling rig, and he had started when he was 19. So he was instantly a million dollars up on me because he had done that job for nine years while I was in college. And I was coming out $100,000 in the tank, and he had been making $100,000 for 10 years. So he was a million dollars up on me. But where is he right now? He's still just a college or, or a high school graduate, probably still working on that same drilling rig. And if he moved to the lower 48, he might not have a job that's not a minimum wage job. Yet he would still be $2 million up on yeah, most thank, of thank, us. No, I get it. Thank you. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> but as we saw in 2015 and 16, oil prices can tank and then you're out of a job and there's no comparable job to a rig operator. So what do you do when the oil and gas industry collapses around you and you have a high school education? Just live off your $2 million. <laughs> to be fair, he didn't have $2 million. He had a couple of seasons of tans that I didn't have. He had some sweet tattoos. Cool. He had stories of cool girlfriends cool. that I didn't have. And he had a bunch of snow machines. Rad. Yeah, it was rad. That's cool. I bet and he had some he, guns, he, he's, too. He's living the best life he can lead. And, you know, good for him. I'm trying to do the same thing. So is there a formula that you might recommend for someone that is going to try to copy what you did and, and get out of debt like that? That's a pretty remarkable story you have. Yes, absolutely. Just pick the deadliest job you can think of and go do that for the most money you can. Hmm. Make sure it interests you. Make sure you're good at it. But think outside the box. You really can't get stagnated in this whole drink the Kool-Aid and pay off your student loans for the next 50 years. That's not going to work out. You'll end up paying eight times more than you borrowed. Now's the time when you can abuse your body and recover. So go work hard and get your coveralls dirty because it's going to be terrible. 
but it'll give you some incredible perspective and it'll make you debt free. Wow. Are you talking to 20 year olds or 30 year olds or what? I'm talking to anybody who still has that young, durable body. So 40 and under. Okay. Well, yeah, that's a possibility. I got nothing else going on in my life. Maybe I could do that for five years. But like a guy like me, I got soft hands. They're going to sniff me out immediately if I show up in Alaska. You will be called a wide variety of names, but your hands will harden up and so will you. Hmm. Well, that's promising. I might have to Google that later. The most important part is that you try. See, the issue I have with most people is that they have these great ideas of how they can get out of this mess. And it just, they all sound like a get rich quick scheme. And this isn't a get rich quick scheme. This is going to be horrible years of your life where you work really hard. This is going to be the get rich slowly scheme, but it works. Mm -hmm. You got to work hard. And it sucks, but then it's over, and now everything's awesome. And you had a lot of amazing experiences up there that you told me about. Uh, case point, Mittens. Mittens. Who was uh, Mittens? Tell us about Mittens. Mittens was a fox. Mittens was a, a red fox that lived under <laughs> that lived uh, underneath a connex behind my office, and was my one really good friend when I lived lived worked up there and it sounds funny but like, <laughs> it, was, it was just uh one really good friend that was just a fox what and, was wrong with everybody else ah uh, they're a bunch of assholes <laughs> did um, they teach you anything about obama it oh they taught me all kinds of things um unmentionable things but everybody up there kind of fits into a quick demographic right they're typically republican and if you work in the office, you're 40 or above. And if you work in the field, you're 40 or below. Uh, that doesn't apply internationally, strictly Alaska. Um, Could I go up there and get one of them sweet office jobs? You can't just jump into a sweet office Dang job. It. Yeah, Bummer. you got to prove yourself, which that one is sounds just a the terrible worst. experience. Yeah, um, I became shop foreman and. It was interesting because I was the youngest shop foreman they'd had and nobody really liked me. And I almost didn't get the job because I told the uh, guy that was interviewing me that I had a college degree in psychology. And he said, last thing we need up there is a fucking psychologist. Yeah. And I said, well, I think it just makes me more adaptable. And I've also built motorcycle engines by hand. And I weaseled my way through it through manipulation, uh, which is one skill I got in college. Manipulation? Manipulation. My whole career could be outlined in a, a very brief timeline about who I manipulated and how much money I made from it. Cool. That sounds like a great uh, discussion for another podcast <laughs> if you study behavioral psychology you'll find that it works on two really specific demographics animals and really dumb people <laughs> and behavioral psychology is the real the real ticket hmm. and what other types of wildlife did you see up there when you're in on the north slope uh there was a lot of uh caribou some bears i saw some polar bears in the wild which oh, yeah. is kind of a uh, cool life thing to have happen 
What is the craziest polar bear story that you have? Um, there was a, a tale of a guard who was looking after a polar bear, and all of a sudden, for no reason, the polar bear jumped up, reached through the windshield, grabbed this guy, dragged him off into the ice, and never seen again. Holy cow. Um, so that's just one of the job hazards up there. Yeah, when I was up there, I saw a bear walk on video, walk up a ladder onto a thing called a well house, this big structure, and then turn around and walk backwards down the ladder. And that's when I kind of realized that like, Oh, it does. There's no climbing to safety here. Um, but uh, in addition to that, I mean, exposure, it got to be, you know, negative 50, negative a hundred with a wind chill. There was every spectrum of industrial accident that you could have. Uh, I mean, it's a really unpleasant job and it's really cold nine months out of the year. So, you don't have to be especially durable. You just have to be, I guess, I don't know, tough enough is a bad way to put it. But you just have to be willing to withstand this kind of inconvenient pain or cold Ugh. or whatever. Yeah. And sleep deprivation. You're really tired and you don't really feel like driving is safe. But hey, you got to get the job done sort of a thing up there. So it... It was a lot of really dangerous stuff that kind of happens back to back and blurs together. What is the grisliest accident that you saw? Um, I was working in my shop and a shop two doors down. Somebody was welding on a methane tanker and they hadn't properly isolated the weld. And the tanker blew up and it blew the windows and the roof off this large structure, like a 25,000 square foot shop. And it was a a big mushroom cloud explosion. And that had a lot of uh, residual damage. Were there people that were killed from that? Uh, Tough to say. In the oil industry, accidents get swept under the rug pretty quick. Really? Yep. What? Yep. Are you at liberty to say that? Yeah, sure. <laughs> who who knows how many people were injured because I'm sure there were just settlements and gag orders and blah, blah, oh blah. Oh, my God. And that's just kind of, I don't know, you're dealing with people like BP and ConocoPhillips. There's just big money. I mean, a million dollars is a drop in the bucket to them. They don't really care. So they just pay the family off a million bucks. Hey, Who's we don't know say? what happened to Jimmy. I don't know crazy yeah that's the whole point they don't really want anybody to know i remember at one point there was uh there was a job delay because a man got decapitated on the job and nobody heard anything about it whoa we just know that it happened who was it when was it what was the situation why did it happen what was he doing there nothing whoa that's crazy but these uh, these are industrial accidents and they they happen in every small town um you just might not have the financial backing of the entire oil industry to cover it up but the same industrial accidents happen everywhere in the country Mm. but i chose alaska specifically because i knew people got paid a lot of money and they went there and i knew that if you were good with finances and investing you didn't have to do it forever and it was one of the most depressing things to see 65 70 year old men getting on that plane to go up there because it really is a young man's game and i can't imagine what happened in their lives to make them feel like they have to work 
to that age doing that kind of work in that place. But when I was up there, I met people that have five or six wives or uh, sorry, ex-wives. So uh, they, uh, that'll do it. Yeah. So, so even if they retired, they wouldn't get any pension. Yeah. Wow. So there are people that think that they just have to work themselves to death. I mean, there's also people that want to die with their boots on and that's an admirable thing, I guess. It's kind of encouraging to know if you go through life and you just mess everything up, there's always Alaska to bail you out. Always. Unless you have a DUI, then it's no no dice. Take note, people. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so I did that for five years, and then I met a gal and decided that that high-risk, high-reward lifestyle probably wasn't for me. So I left and it was really difficult because I really liked making a lot of money. But who doesn't? I think investing properly and managing finances is the next step. Because I had paid off all my student debt or close to it. And I had a significant amount of money in the bank and I kind of had my life in order and I made some real estate investments. And now I own a house in Portland and everything's really nice. Yeah. That's great. So my advice would be to anybody within the 25 to 40 spectrum that really isn't quite sure what their career move is going to be or what their next steps going to be. Don't think about it in terms of I need to set a career stage for myself. Think about it as I need to get rid of this debt and I need to do it fast because this is going to haunt me for my most inspired years if I just continue to pay this 30-year mortgage on your education, which is ridiculous to me. Yeah. I'm in a funny position because I recently paid off all of my undergrad debt um congratulations thank you that felt really good but then i it was right about the same time that i graduated from grad school and so i now have a new payment that is three times more what my previous payment was and uh i don't know it's kind of like a luxury debt i'll be paying that for quite a while um education is an interesting debt because if i could sell my degrees for cash I would but if they were going to give me a chemical lobotomy and take away my college years I wouldn't Hmm. so I feel intellectually enriched is there anything that I can give up and declare bankruptcy to get out of this debt no there's not but you kind of have to rely on yourself and know that you are smarter for having to gone to a university and you're going to get yourself out of this mess. And the way to do it is to be more durable and be more flexible and don't drink that Kool-Aid. Drive used cars. New cars are a scam. Uh, Ride your bike. If you don't ride your bike, that's a terrible mistake. Keeps you fit and it's free. Uh, What else? Um, Good advice for you. There's a lot of millennials that are going to be really upset with your advice because I think that they've just been sold their entire lives on the idea that 
Um, if you go to college, get a degree, there's going to be something out there waiting for you. But I have a different perspective because the recession hit at exactly the moment that I was like ready to get a career. And then I couldn't get one and I had to scrimp and scramble and make my own business and do all kinds of weird stuff just to make ends meet. And then I see younger people graduate now with these expectations that seem a little bit ab- absurd to me but they exist nevertheless we were dealt a tough hand uh i graduated from uaa about the time about 2009 and i thought to myself like oh this is terrible and now this has all been a waste and now i'm in debt and there's no way to get rid of this debt you can't bankrupt yourself out of student loan debt and so i stayed in school just to keep the deferment rolling and, you know, try to learn a little bit more while I could, while it was cheap. And it wasn't ever cheap. I was just lying to myself. But I think that living cheap is an admirable thing. And not many people judge you when you just try to limit your outgoing finances and collect your money. So let's just say you live in Portland right now and you make 3000 bucks take home every month, which is seems to be about you know a fair amount of money. That's pretty good by Portland standards. The idea that Portland rent is going up so high that you can't afford it is... I, I understand that rent's going up and I believe that it is, it is going up... But our standards are also going up. We want to live alone. We don't want roommates. We want a place that accepts dogs because now we have one. We need a garage because we have this car. And it's just all these things pile up and our expectations and our lives get more expensive as we get older. And as far as all the baby boomers that are just like, well, just buy a house. It's like, it's not that easy. You have to save money. And my best advice for actually saving money is live cheap don't have a car if you don't need one consider a motorcycle or a scooter insurance is like 15 bucks a month yeah you pulled up in a older generation jeep today huh i really only own older cars and though i could buy whatever car i wanted i like the older ones because the insurance on that 1988 jeep wrangler is 12 dollars a month <laughs> wow and you, you you can't beat that and it's simple enough that I can work on it myself and it's small enough that it can park it anywhere. And it's a very durable car. I was having a similar discussion with a friend last night and we were talking about the different expectations of standard of living that people in a city have by comparison of friends that I have in high school that maybe never went to college. uh, They have everything that i have it's just not the city version of it they have old cars they have um houses that might have a um you know outhouse (laughs) they they do different tasks to earn a living but that the money they make provides for that the life that they have and it's the same one as i have it's just not you know, a one bedroom place in the middle of a city, you know, for right. example. It's and consider not a that they twenty thirteen car. They a, commute to work, so they need that reliability. We live in Portland, man. Like 
if if for some reason the car doesn't start there's 15 different options to get to work and the cheapest one is just walk there uh but if their car breaks down and they work 10 miles away that's not an option but on the other hand if they see a sunday driver they see a, a broken down 69 ford mustang and they want to buy it and fix it up they can they could just buy it put it in the driveway and fix it over time on the cheap we would have to park it somewhere we would have to pay for all this stuff if we want car parts we have to go somewhere in the city that sells car parts and you know city life is just inherently more expensive but our standards are going up at an unreasonable rate i understand wanting to live alone and i understand that it the city is growing but i really think consider roommates you're going to save a ton of money i'm also not a big fan of commutes if you don't need a car you probably just shouldn't have one and this is coming from a guy that has a couple of cars and motorcycles but i'm a car guy if you don't need one you shouldn't have one the amount you're going to spend on a car in the course of a month everything included purchase price insurance gas oil blah 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 all that stuff isn't as much as it would cost for you to rent the same size or bigger apartment closer to your workplace that you could walk to well, this is a great time to be talking to you because I have made some wild financial decisions as of late. Uh, the most, uh, I don't know, the, the most intense decision was to just quit my job. Um, and so I did that and now I no longer have income. And uh, I don't really know what I want to do next. I have no idea. I have no direction. I have this savings that exists from the previous like seven or so years of working really hard and um before i quit my job i was like i i would often think i could pay off all of my debt right now and now i think i could blow that money and <laughs> enjoy life for a couple months and that is the uh that's the thought that is winning out right now because i just like need a break from all these pressures that I've found myself under at age 36, you know? And so I'm, I'm ruining my nest egg. I'm, I'm not going to have a down payment on a house anymore. Um, but it's like, I just need it to figure out why I'm alive again. <laughs> I totally agree. And I think it's an excellent choice that you've made because very much like a long-term relationship, you going from one to another probably isn't healthy. You know, just getting out of one relationship. How long were you with uh, AMPM? I was there five years. Five years. So if you went from AMPM to another place where you were there for five years, I mean, you you need that hiatus. You need that sabbatical in the middle where you would just think about what what makes Mike Phillips do what Mike Phillips does, and. I, th I think it's a very eye-opening experience. Yeah, we'll see. So far, I've just been kind of sitting around a bunch. Um, That's a part of it. <laughs> but we fired up the podcast again. Sure and I'm did. I'm really grateful that you're here today. Happy to be here. Um, let's talk about politics. Yeah, what would you like to talk about? I think there's a real lack of centrist politicians to pick from. Is this where you launch your political career it is <laughs> before i launch it uh because i do think that there are 
issues in today's society that exist and a lot of people are have ideas have solutions have concepts that will work and America being as polarized as it is, you know, Republicans, Democrats, and this kind of non-existent libertarian Green Party, you know, weird zone. It's kind of, yeah, it's, it's making it really difficult to pick a candidate. But I genuinely believe that a candidate came and was centrist enough and had rational views on a lot of subjects. They could get a lot done. And I think that's what America and Portland and even this neighborhood association needs is you can't have guns are bad and they shouldn't exist. And on the other end of the spectrum, guns are the greatest things that ever happened to Americans and everybody needs 10. And there's there's got to be a middle ground. And I think if a candidate showed up and said, hey, guns are a part of our culture, but let's not be stupid you'd find a lot of people on board with that. Yeah, there's a few gentlemen that I know, including yourself, that would have really great insights on how to solve the problem with guns. And it really requires people that own guns and like guns to that, that are also conscious of the dilemma they pose on our society that need to lead that conversation. And I, I've evolved myself quite a bit over the years. Like, you know, ask me five 10 years ago, I would have said every gun should be taken away because clearly they're intended for one thing and that's to kill people. But I've since lightened up a little bit and <laughs> mostly from talking to people like you and my friend Eric and, and, and people that are like, Hey, if there's sensible gun laws, I'll give up some of mine, you know, it, but there, there needs to be just some real common sense behind it. Well, consider that the automotive industry, when Firestone started putting faulty tires on Ford Explorers and a few of them blew up and rolled over, what happened? The government stepped in. Sorry, I had an eye itch. Okay. Uh, (laughs) I didn't mean to be so distracting. I was like, what is this signal? (laughs) (laughs) That means I'm going to (laughs) cry. I was like, more tears. It needs to be a sadder story. (laughs) Yeah, Um, let me fire up the sad music. Okay, go on. You were saying death. So so there were Firestone put these tires on Ford Explorers, and eventually it came out that these tires were faulty, and people knew about it. And what happened? People were getting killed due to a product. The government stepped in and said, you got to fix it. You could still have tires. We all still have tires, but you need to have some level of control. And all those tires that killed those people need to go forever. Gone. Plain devil's advocate for a moment. Sure. The bump stock that got a lot of attention from the recent uh, Vegas massacre. Very familiar with it. It wasn't defective. It worked really well. It was. But... In this instance, it killed a lot of people, right? <laughs> just like yeah. those Firestone tires killed a, a lot of people. Yeah. And and not just people that had bought bump stocks. They killed innocent people. I mean, these people bought Firestone tires. They thought they were getting Firestone tires, whatever. They don't know. And that Ford Explorer crashed into other cars, and those people died too. I mean, we're talking about things that kill a lot of Americans, and it's a super-duper bummer because they're all innocent. Yeah, and airbags are another example. Takata uh, had 
a bunch of faulty airbags and the government stepped in and all those models were recalled and you know action was taken because people were dying um for no reason but the the challenge with guns is we have the second amendment correct we do but there is you're familiar with a gun buyback yeah yeah there's nothing stopping anybody from just buying back guns Portland could get a budget for a half million dollars from somewhere, anywhere, nowhere, it doesn't matter. Uh, and instead of promoting anti-gun legislation, they could simply buy back guns at the police department for a hundred bucks a pop, open-ended. And so if you have a gun and you don't want it in your house, bring it there, get a hundred bucks for it. If you find a gun, bring it there, get a hundred bucks for it. And then they end up and, you know, melted down. And who cares? It doesn't matter. Guns off the streets. So if communities really cared about gun control, there's something that they could do. But they just don't. And Portland, this huge city full of, you know, people that are relatively not anti-gun, but just pro-gun control. That's never been brought up as a possible solution. I'm more of a baby steps sort of a guy. So I really think that there should be discussions about gun control that don't involve somebody knocking on your door taking away your guns because i feel like that's the sort of impression that republicans and libertarians are going to get the minute you start talking about it but if you say hey what if we just said you get a tax write-off if you buy a safe yeah the thing i've noticed is that republicans and libertarians are very sensitive to the idea of taking guns away they think that any little a bit of legislation is the tip of the slippery slope to just take everything back. And, you know, why do we have to accommodate these people that have these irrational, dumb fears is my question. Well, it's not even a legislation. Uh, after Sandy Hook, the price of an AR-15 went up to $2,500. And this is a $500 firearm. And it just went up that amount because people were afraid. People are like, they're going to take away my guns because of this. They're going to use this to take away my freedom. And that made a lot of people really scared. And so I think there needs to be discussion that, you know, really takes the NRA out of it and says, we don't need your permission to pass legislation on giving gun owners a tax break for buying a safe to make their guns inaccessible to people who are going to use them for harm. Mm -hmm. And while this doesn't get rid of any, any situation where a legal gun owner, like the Vegas recent incident, he bought those guns legally assuming, right? And he went and committed this thing and the bump stock is legal. And let's just say it, it probably shouldn't be. Uh, it's not going to stop situations like that. But all of the times when you hear about a kid went into his like his dad's closet and he found his gun at the bottom of the underwear drawer, like that sort of stuff, you know, a lot of that is going to go away. And this is one step towards a positive and it's going to cost us not that much money. So, yeah, if you want to buy a gun safe and keep your guns in it, you get 500 bucks off your taxes. That seems like a logical a next idea. step. Yeah. So I'm all about these baby steps and I feel like it brings it forward into discussion 
you know, we need to talk about this. This isn't something that we could say, oh my God, what a tragedy. Well, let's never talk about guns again. Because everybody owns them. You know, I don't know what the statistics are, but a lot of people own guns in America. I've and heard they're pretty dangerous sometimes. Of Americans own the majority of guns. I've also heard people bring up the idea that why isn't it that Sandy Hook was enough for us to make decisive action? Like that was horrific. And yet we've had things that have been also horrific since then. The Orlando shooting was insane. The most recent Vegas shooting was insane. Because I mean, what it, is it going to take? It's because of the polar, the, you polarize the country, right? So you have half the people that say somebody's got to do something, which is probably just the most pathetic, sad thing you can say after something like that. Somebody should do something. And then the other half says, don't touch my guns. And there's no middle ground. And this is where a politician that is centrist would really fall into their element because they could say, hey, guys, like you can have guns and guns are part of our culture. And let's be honest, there's too many of them for us to gather them up anyway. But these bump stocks got to go because one guy used it. And sorry, he ruined the fun for everybody because he killed a bunch of innocent people using them because what it does is it turns a cheap gun into a more expensive gun. You can legally own, Mike, you can go and do some paperwork, and with a couple hundred dollars, you could get a Class 3 license, which means that you can have silencers, you can have shortened barrels on shotguns, and you can have fully automatic rifles, firearms. And that's perfectly legal. A lot of people do this. This is a relatively common thing, but you just have to do the paperwork. So this guy could have had a fully functional machine gun if he had done the paperwork. It's not incredibly difficult. What this little trinket does is you bolt it onto a normal rifle and it turns it into one of these more expensive fully automatic rifles, but without the safety and without the accuracy. So what you end up with is a homemade race car, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Like, you know, you're on a Schwinn bicycle going 100 miles an hour. It's not meant for that. So we need to control it to an extent. And this is one product of an example of many, many, many different products that is really going to cost American lives. And if we had a centrist politician that could articulate that, I don't feel like we'd be in this predicament. Yeah, I agree. And... uh you know, we're at the end of our time here. Uh, that sounds like uh, you've opened the door to some more interesting conversations. So we'll have to have you back here on the Me and My Friends podcast. Are there any parting thoughts that you'd like to share before we wrap this up? All people, all ages need to take more risks. Not financially, in general. If you don't know how to do something, don't pay somebody else to do it. Learn how to do it yourself. That's, that's my parting gift. That's, that's a great parting gift, and I hope that people consider it. I will as well. Wit, thank you once again for coming here and joining me for another episode of the Me and My Friends podcast. Mike, thanks for having me. Scout, let's go. Bark. <laughs>